Thank you so much for that, Jimmy Lou. You're hired. <laughs> um, we have been going through the, the book of Titus. Uh, we've, we've made it all the way to verse 5, and uh, by the end of, of today, hopefully, we'll make it to verse 6. Um, th- this verse that we're going to be covering is, is really going to serve a little bit as a preview for the rest of the book of Titus. It's going to uh, introduce really something uh, quite simple but quite important. And that is, what should the role or the nature of order be in the church? And, you know, uh, there are some discussions and and debates in terms of, uh, well, to what degree uh, should you have authority versus autonomy in the church? What degree should things be spontaneous? And to what degree should things be planned? Uh, And we're going to explore that question, and we're going to explore that question by engaging in a process that we've talked about uh, being evident in the book of Titus. And it's, it's really a process for spiritual growth, and that is we're going to look at who God is and what He's done in order to form our identity, that is answering the question, who am I, and who are we, both individual and corporate identity, and then finally look at, well, how should that change the way in which we live? How does that change our everyday lives and interactions? Uh, So with that in mind, we're going to be in Titus uh, chapter 1, and we're just going to be looking at verse 5 in our time together here today. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is Paul speaking. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that you would help us to reflect upon your word. We pray that you would help us be conformed to your word. We pray that your word would give us joy, it would give us enthusiasm, it would give us energy for the tasks we have at hand. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us now and to strengthen and empower us for your purposes. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Uh, Paul here just just simply says that uh, Titus has been left in Crete for a particular reason. And one of the things that tells us is that Paul and Titus were together in Crete. Paul had to move on as as he was often wont to do. You know, you read the stories of Paul in Acts, and it never seems like he stays in one place very long. He's always moving on to the next thing. But one of the things Paul is very conscious of is he, he never wants to abandon a church. He always wants to send people and resources that are needed to the places in which he has been. And here we see that Titus is left kind of as an emissary of Paul in Crete to set things in order, uh, to establish some things. He says uh, that their purposes, the reason why I left you there, is so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, and as you, as you read different commentators, uh, there's kind of a couple takes on uh, these things that Paul says. One take is that 
putting what remained in order is the exact same thing as the second part in Titus 1.5, to appoint elders in every town. The, the, the way in which you establish order in the church is by appointing elders in every town. There's another view that says these are two completely distinct things, that on the one hand you have uh, Titus there to establish order in the church, and then another task is to appoint elders in every town. Uh, there's a third view that I, I think kind of reflects the emphasis of the text and really serves almost as a preview for the rest of the book. And that is Timothy's overall purpose is to put the church into order. And T Titus, did I say Timothy? I'm getting all the pastorals mixed up. Uh, I've done a lot of teaching out of Timothy. This is my first time through Titus. And also if I say Peter instead of Paul, you just flip it. <laughs> Titus... And Paul are the, are the key players here. Uh, so Titus, uh, and I believe this is the, the accurate view, is that Titus's objective is to establish order within the church. And that one of the means by which he does this is the appointing of elders. Uh, we, we see throughout the book of Titus that there are different ways in which Titus is to act in order to establish order in the church in Crete. Uh, the, the rest of the book really fleshes it out. Uh, he's to make sure that the believers had somebody ordered over them who were agents of moral order. That is the elders. He, he was to make sure that the elders in their personal lives, in their family relationships, had rightly ordered lives. He, he, he goes on to say that Titus is to protect the church from the agents of chaos, the false teachers who are spreading lies into the church. He, he then describes ways in the book of Titus in which the individual members of the church talks about old men, young men. He talks about slaves. He talks about the young women. He talks about their relationships to their husbands and one another and the ways in which they were to order their lives in order for them to be godly before God. He, he, he also talks about how they should rightly order their lives in relationship to the gospel. That in light of the fact that Christ has appeared and manifest his grace to us, and in light of the fact that Christ is going to appear in glory, how should one order their lives? The whole book of, of Titus is describing ways in which the church should be organized in a proper way. And one of the things I would say is that this order comes from the fact that we serve a God of order. Now, now by the way, order, like all good things, can be misused and abused, can it? In fact, there are some people, and they use order as a means to not submit to God, as, as a way to have a system to rely on rather than a God to rely on. Uh, but, and, and obviously, you, you can think of examples in history where there were very organized leaders who systematically perpetrated evil. But just because a good thing is abused doesn't mean we throw it out. And, and when we look at the character and the nature of God and the way in which he relates to the world, 
We see that that order is, is something that God demonstrates and values. And one of the things we see is that God is morally ordered in and of himself. Do you ever think about that? God is a morally ordered being. We, we hear this in Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. What he has said, will he not do? Or what he has spoken, will he not fulfill it? That is, part of the trustworthiness of God is dependent upon him being a morally ordered being. He, he's not the type of God that says, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And I say, oh, wait a minute. You know, there was something I didn't think about. You know, I just forgot about this factor. All right, let, let, let's change things over. No, he's a God whose promises can be relied upon. When you think of, of justice and law, what, what is the purpose of justice and law? It's to create a rightly ordered society. Is our God not just? Does he not long for order to be entered? So we see in, in God's justice, in, in God's morality, that he is a God of order. We also see this in, in the creation's account, the creative account of God. In Genesis 1-2, it says the earth was formless and void after God initially creates the heavens and the earth. And it's really interesting what you have in the next six days of creation in the, in the first three, we see that God is attacking the formlessness of the earth. As he, he separates light and dark. He, he separates the waters above from the waters below. He separates the earth from the water and gives them their proper boundaries. Well, you know, it's all, almost mind-boggling for us. You know, you think about the first day of creation. Can you imagine light and dark mixed? I mean, it's almost inconceivable for us. Yet, yet what does he do with this formless mass of both light and dark mass together? He separates it. He divides it. He begins to form the world. In the next three days, he, he begins to fill the creation, doesn't he? As the light and dark, he begins to form and fashion and fill with heavenly bodies. The heavens above and the waters below, he fills with fish and birds. And then on the earth, he puts all the creeping and crawling things, all the beasts of the earth. We have in creation these descriptions of a God who combats the formlessness and the emptiness by establishing his rightly ordered creation. When you think about the stars as they travel their paths in the sky and the planets, as they follow their set courses, you can't help but think, there's an order to this. But by the way, this is something that even atheists recognize. They recognize that there is an inherent order to the universe. Uh, R Richard Dawkins, who's an adamant atheist, I don't, I don't know if you know this, and I'm pretty sure this is accurate. I should have fact-checked myself before giving this tidbit. But he wrote his uh, dissertation, I, I believe for his doctoral thesis, was on the patterns. He's an expert in biology. And it was on the patterns. Now listen to where he is looking for patterns. For patterns in the pecking of chickens for seed. 
and, and he was able to find and, and, and establish these, this order that he found in chickens pecking for seed. Now, somebody who doesn't believe that there's a personal controlling being over the universe recognizes that we live in a highly ordered universe. I would have never thought to look for order in, in the pecking of chickens. I guess in a way, he believes more in the order of God than, than I do. Um, so we have this God who's ordered creation. He's ordered it in, in these beautiful and mathematical and creative ways. We also uh, hear that nature is sustained by his order. He, he, nature is sustained by God's command. Look at Psalm 33 with me just for a minute. This is a beautiful passage. Psalm 33, verse 6. I'm going to read reading uh, verses 6 through 9 in Psalm 33. Listen to the descriptions, not only of creation, but uh, sustaining and moving the world and the waters. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in st deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The reason why we have consistency, the reason why we have uh, a nature that is firm and not variable, is because we have a God who is ordered. And by the word of his mouth, nature falls into line. We also have a God that not only orders nature, but also orders human relationships and, and even hierarchy in government. We see this in Romans 13.1. In Romans 13.1, uh, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. What we have here, that, that's painful as Americans to listen to, isn't it? You know, we get a president we don't like and we think, oh gosh, I can't wait four years, we'll get him out of there. We don't think, how can I be rightly ordered under this divinely appointed leader of the nation. By the way, I believe when Paul is writing Romans, Nero is the highest authority in the empire. So whatever excuses we have not to follow or obey are diminished in terms of theirs. And of course, there are always possible exceptions. You say, well, what if they say something that goes against the command of God? Well, of course, we need to be rightly ordered under the king of heaven, and then to the degree possible under that authority to be submitted to the governing authorities of this world. God has ordered society and government under his control. We, when we look at all these things together, we begin having a picture of a God who is well-ordered. And, and in a way, this should change the way we live. 
in fact, I was preparing this message, and I was kind of reading over this verse and meditating on it, um, and I just looked at my desk, and there are these papers and books scattered all about it, and you know, some of them are from our previous series on hell and all this stuff, and I just thought, I need to get this in order. You know, I, 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 need, to, I, need, to, I need to start applying some of these principles, and I, I, I stopped and cleaned up my desk. You know, as a small way of trying to apply this principle that because we have a God of order, we should act as, we should live as agents of order in a chaotic world. One of the things that we begin to see, particularly in in Titus, is that this relationship of being rightly ordered extends to our corporate activity in the church. We should be ordered in our corporate activity of the church. By the way, 1 Corinthians is a book that heavily emphasizes this. 1 Corinthians 14.14 says, But all things should be done decently and in order. What was happening in the church of Corinth? Well, people were speaking in tongues and they were doing these type of things, but there wasn't a proper interpretation. So what did they have? They had a bunch of chaos and they might have had one or two people speaking in tongues at the time. So what was occurring? Confusion, disorder. Paul says, hey, look, speaking tongues is a good thing, but disorder in the church is not. The way in which you use your gifts and the way in which you come to church and practice these things should be in order. It should reflect the order that God has shown us. We're to be ordered in our individual morality. I think Matthew 5, 48 has perhaps the hardest to apply verse in all the Bible, which is Jesus telling us, be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. If God our Father is a morally ordered person, if he is a just God, it should be reflected in the character of his people. We should be ordered in our relationship to church leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Uh, You know, I have something to confess. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit of an anti-establishmentarianism. So, you know, these passages are hard for me. You might be thinking, oh, he's on the church staff. He's trying to get people in line. But uh, no, I I really kick against authority, especially in the church, actually. Um, Because in the church, I kind of think, well, I know a little bit better than them. You know, I've been to seminary. I've I've done this. I've done that. You know, I know better than them what God's will is. That's a very dangerous attitude to have in general. But in specifically in the local church where I am called to submit to the rulers, the elders that have been placed here, that's a rebellious attitude not only against the leadership, but against the God who established that leadership. We see that we serve a God who has ordered all things. So the, the question is then, if we serve this God of order, how do we become more and more people of order? How do we establish his rule and reign on the earth? I think one of the things that that is 
rather important, is to make sure, first of all, we are submitted to order. Uh, there, there are oftentimes uh, when I read uh, different quotes from generals and leaders, and, and there's one thing universally that most uh, military leaders believe is a prerequisite for somebody coming into a leadership position. And it is the ability to follow orders. Uh, General Patton has an illustration. He says, uh, if you're looking at a bunch of guys and you, and you want to have them uh, promoted, he said, what you need to do is you need to put them all in a barn and tell them to dig a one-inch deep, three-inch wide trench. Which, If you know anything about trenches, there's no reason to dig a one-inch deep, three-foot wide trench. He said, then drill a hole in the barn and look in it. And he says, while they're arguing about what should be done, look at the one who says, hey, look, this guy's crazy, but I think we should go ahead and do it and get it done. He says, then promote that guy. There's a, a, a necessary prerequisite to having a well-ordered life is to be under the right authority. Are we under the authority of God? Are, are we submitted to Him? Are we submitted to the other authorities that God has put over us? So the, the first thing we need to make sure is, am I aligned correctly upwardly? Is, am I aligned to my God and the authorities He has put over me? Then another thing we need to look at is, am I properly aligned with the responsibilities He has given me? That is, I'm not shirking the things that He has put under my stewardship in order to enjoy more freedom. Uh, there's another type of order we need to have that's not only external but internal. I believe that we need to have a rightly ordered mind. That is, is your mind in a proper relationship with the truth, the goodness, and the glory of God? Does my mind dwell upon those things? Is it functioning in a proper relationship with them? Am I allowing the truth of God to infect my thoughts? Or am I allowing lies to disorder my thinking? Am I allowing the good, goodness of God to be the meditation of my mind? Am I reminding myself and renewing myself on His goodness? Do I have a vision of God's glory? Do I see His purposes on earth? Do I see the ways in which He is working towards and moving all history towards His purposes? Or am I distracted by the glories of this world and the things that are fleeting? Having a rightly ordered mind, uh, by the way, serves as a guard. Uh, in, in many ways, as, as you think of your mind, one of the things I've, I would like you to think of it is as a gatekeeper to your heart. And, and a proper gatekeeper lets in the right things and lets out the right things. It also keeps out the right thing, the wrong things. What you if you have a poor gatekeeper, it lets anything in. 
Scripture says to, to guard your hearts. The way in which we guard our hearts is making sure our minds are properly aligned to the truth, the goodness, and the glory of God. Uh, as, as Jimmy Lou was, was singing, I thought, she is making waiting on the Lord sound so beautiful. But in my life, that has not been my experience. <laughs> I have not viewed waiting on the Lord as a beautiful thing. I've viewed it as a painful thing, as a toiling thing where I'm longing and waiting and at times kicking against the spurs. That's a way in which I need to realign my mind to have a proper relationship with God, His goodness and glory. In my impatience, I'm forgetting His goodness and His purposes. Our minds should be guarding our hearts. Then we want to have rightly ordered hearts. That is, we should have the innermost part of us producing faith, hope, and love. It is the truth of God that I am allowing my mind to meditate on. Is it producing faith in me? Am I believing more and more the truth of God's Scripture? Is the goodness of God producing in me love? Am I being transformed by His goodness? That is, I'm not just a recipient of His grace. I'm not just a recipient of His mercy. I'm not just a recipient of His love. I am not the one-way, dead-end street of God's goodness, but those things which He has poured into me from the overflow of His goodness, I'm pouring into others. And I'm showing grace and mercy and love to a dark, and dying world that is without God. Am I rightly ordering my loves? By the, by the way, rightly ordering our loves also involves loving first things first. If there's anything good that I'm loving more than God, if I'm loving my wife more than God, if I'm loving my kids more than God, I'm going to run into some problems. It's going to cause discord. It's going to cause discord in my marriage if I love my wife more than God because I'm going to be putting pressure on my wife to provide certain things that only God can provide. And I'm going to get angry and mad at her when she doesn't provide those things. Why? Because I've elevated her above her proper place and loved her disordinately. Now, if I'm loving my wife more than God, chances are I'm not loving my wife too much. I'm loving God too little and that I have not elevated him to his proper place and love him above all else. Are we rightly ordering our loves? Are we allowing the goodness of God to produce in us love? Are we allowing the glory of God to shape our hope? Are you ordering your hopes? What are you hoping for in life? Are you working? Is it, work? is it living for the weekend? Living for retirement? Living for escape? Living for family? What do you hope for? What are you longing for? Is your hope being shaped by the glory of God? Is your hope being shaped by the fact that Christ has died on the cross for you? Is your hope being shaped by the fact that Christ is on high interceding on your behalf? Is your hope being shaped by the fact that He has given us His Holy Spirit? Is your hope being shaped 
by the fact that Christ is returning to earth. And at that point, he will judge the living and the dead, some to eternal life and others to eternal condemnation. Is what you hope for being shaped by the glory of God? As we have a, a rightly ordered mind and a rightly ordered heart, it should result in producing right action. Remember, as, as we say, as we go through this uh, process, that we've talked about who God is. God is a rightly ordered God in His truth, His goodness, His glory. And, and that should be forming us, forming our minds, forming our hearts, and transforming our actions. Remember, we said that a very dangerous thing to do is to start at the other end. To start with our actions to say, if I act a certain way, if I talk a certain way, if I, I do certain things, that's going to make me a Christian and that is going to result in God having a right relationship with me. No, 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 no. It is God who is the initiator and the starter of this relationship. And because of His goodness, because of His love, because of His glory, because of His grace, because of His truth revealed to us, we are made and formed as a people. And as we are made and formed into a people by the power of His Holy Spirit, He begins to transform us into people who talk and act and live and breathe a different way. We have this process where the truth, the goodness, and the glory of God is producing in us faith, love, and hope within our hearts. And this should be incarnating itself. It should be in rightly ordered action. That is, in our words. That is, if, if the truth of God is producing faith in me, then in the things that I am proclaiming, the things that I am saying, is going to reflect that truth that God has revealed and honor Him. If God's goodness is producing in me love, not only for Him, but for others, that'll show up in my deeds the way I use my eyes, the way I use my hands, the way I use my feet? Am I looking on others with the compassion and grace that God has looked upon me with? Am I reaching out to help those in need as God has reached down to help me? Are my feet rushing to do good as we have a Heavenly Father who rushes to our aid? Not only just in words and actions, it's not mechanical, but also in our attitude is the hope that we have from the glory in which we are pursuing, is that creating an attitude that is longing for the return of Christ? When I think of glory, I think a lot of David. And David's an interesting character because he's a harpist. You know, he's a harpist, he's a musical guy, he's singing. You know, and when you think of people like that, you generally also don't think warrior. But that, that's what David is. He, he's a psalmist. He's a poet. He's a warrior poet. Now, you kind of think, what do those two things have in common? They both have in common a heavy, heavy value on what's glorious. What do the psalmists sing about? They sing about what is glorious. What does the warrior fight for? He fights for that which is glorious whether by the pen or by the sword, they're pursuing a life that is dealing with glory. 
Do you have the warrior poet attitude? That is, is, is the glory and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Does that affect the way we do things? When, when you, when you are, are, are doing things that you might think below you, do you think, this is a way in which I can honor and love God, and for that I'm going to rejoice in this task, no matter how menial or insignificant I might think it is. We have a God who, who is morally ordered, who has revealed His order through His truth, His goodness, and His glory. We should be becoming a people who are morally ordered in our faith, in our love, in our hope. We should have rightly ordered actions seen in our words, our deeds, and our attitudes. We should be rightly ordered under the authority of God and under the authorities which God has put over us. We should be in a right relationship with the responsibilities God has given us stewardship over. We do all this to reflect the truth, the goodness, and the glory of a God who is a God of order and to reflect His love to an increasingly chaotic world. We're about to sing and then partake of the Lord's table, which is another reminder of the way in which we order our lives. We order our lives in dependence of Jesus Christ, our Savior who has died for us. We submit to Him and seek Him. Let's close this portion out with prayer and then we'll go to the Lord's table or we'll sing and then go to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, we pray that we would be agents of godly order in our lives, no matter where you've placed us or where you've put us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who reflect your character because you are our God. We pray that we might be a people who meditate upon your truth, your goodness, your glory, that within us we are continual founts of faith, hope, and love towards you, and that this would show in the way in which our deeds, our words, our attitudes, are reflected in our everyday life. Lord, I pray that we might submit to you, not because you are a tyrant, but because you are a loving and good Heavenly Father who desires what is best for us and for what honors you. Lord, I pray that you might equip us by your Holy Spirit for these purposes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray.